everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your host as always, and I'm here with a new boss. Sarah Moore is our content manager for North America. You've seen a ton of stuff that she posts. Uh, she is going to be reading some news for us today. Sarah, how's it going? Going well. Looking forward to riding in the rain with you shortly. Oh, it's going to be very wet. Today, we are talking World Cup racing. Our own James Smirthwaite, my other boss, he's here from the UK representing the Queen. He sat down with the UCI's Simon Burney. Burney manages the off-road division of the UCI. Uh, so we're going to get into that. And we're here with Brian Park, as always. Brian, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. I'm here. Great, great. I, I, I'm technically representing the Queen, too, up here, up here in the Commonwealth. I guess you are, aren't you? Yeah. We also have Casimir, as always. Casimir? Hey, I'm here. Yep. Hey, I'm here. Casimir, did you ride bikes? Present. Yes, I rode bikes. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> I know. It is looking like some racing might start up again. We're hearing some things about the World Cup uh, later on this year, and there's some local-ish racing that's starting as well, too. Some Northwest Cup stuff and some other things. Are you guys... Are you guys going to do any races this year, Casimir? You? I don't think I am. I was going to, but I just saw that my money was refunded from that race since it got canceled. So I usually only do like a couple races a year. So yeah. more than likely, I won't race this year, but we'll see. If something comes up local that's close, I'll do it. Enduro, eh? Or downhill? Enduro, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. What race were you going to do? Uh, just the Cascadia Dirt Cup here in mm -hmm. Bellingham. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fun. Sarah, were you going to do any racing? I had signed up for the Pemberton Enduro, and then I was going to do the Vetter Mountain Enduro and the Vetter Mountain Cross Country back-to-back. -back. Oh, yeah. Shout out Vetter Mountain. I'm kind of glad that home. I didn't have to do that, because I think that was going to be a really hard weekend. It got canceled. I've, and I I've done that Vetter XC race. I couldn't imagine doing the Enduro the next day. I know lots of people do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, Evan Guthrie can do it, and all these pro XC racer guys. I could totally do it. Yeah, but I, no. I, do, I do not look at things and go like, oh, Evan Guthrie can do it. Obviously, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was maybe a little bit ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad that was canceled. I have, I have no races planned now. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be doing any. If we end up seeing some like August, September XC stuff here in Squamish, maybe some Toonie stuff, I might do some things. But other than that, not so much. You're going to just be battling uh, Kaz on, on an Everest challenge and stuff. My girlfriend and I have been talking about Everesting quite a lot lately. And I think she's going to do something, do write a story and do some things. And she's doing some research about like the the optimum slope. Anyways, Pink Bike, you guys aren't here to listen to that. Let's move on. <laughs> you guys probably don't want to hear about Everesting. <laughs> Sarah, tell us about the news. Uh, so I think we have to start off uh, with the biggest, most important story uh, that we shared this week, uh, which was the opinion piece that Brian wrote about uh, race and accessibility in the mountain bike world. Uh, Brian, do you want to talk about that article and what, was, what it was like for you to pull that together? Yeah, sure. I mean, race in, uh, is a topic that's at the front of a lot of people's minds right now. It's a really challenging topic. And honestly, I don't know if a podcast is, you know, a bunch of, bunch of upper middle class white kids sitting around in front of microphones talking in a glib podcast is like not the right format to talk about it too much. The general take was that we've got so much more to learn and to do. We've got to amplify some more diverse voices um, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're still working on some details on that. And we definitely have to take a hard look at how our community interacts with each other on Pink Bike. You know, in, in leading up to writing that, I was speaking to the very few uh, people of color in the mountain bike industry. And it was a gut punch to hear that they were afraid of putting themselves out there on, on our platform. Like, that's 
clearly not okay. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to write something. Yeah. yeah. And there's over a thousand comments on that article. I'm sure you've got some people that didn't comment, but that sent you direct messages. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the reception been like from the community? Yeah, it's it's definitely something that people care a lot about. The reception has been largely crazy positive, which is nice. You know, I probably got like, I don't know, 70, 80, maybe more positive messages outside of pink bike which is really nice definitely got a couple of negative ones um overall i'm yeah proud of the community for the response i will say that holy shit the negative stuff that i got directly was quite bad like i definitely understand why people were afraid of putting themselves out there yeah it's that that stuff's heavy and then we've been talking a little bit about or mulling over some changes that we could make to pink bike and the community and the, the comment section. Do you want to touch on yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, probably not too much cause we don't have all the answers. I understand why people are frustrated about this topic and uncomfortable with this topic. It's, it's an uncomfortable topic cause it requires some introspection. And on top of that, you know, it's a, it's a mountain bike site where people's expectations are to go and to not, not have to confront their own biases and our own things. It's, you know, you go there to talk shit on wheel sides and stuff. So that's not people's expectations on pink bikes. So I get that. We've definitely got to do more to make the commentary less toxic. It's just like there are times where it goes over the line. And um, I don't think we want to shut anything down. Um, and I think we want to like inform and elevate rather than to like create more division. But it's going to be so it's going to be a delicate long term thing that we take our time doing. I will say one thing and that's man, the whole freedom of speech thing, like freedom of speech, isn't freedom from consequences. You know, we're a private Canadian company and if somebody comes into your house and this is the, you know, I said this in the comments, but like somebody comes into your house and takes a poo on your rug, you can ask them not to take a poo on your rug and explain why you don't want them to take a poo in your rug. But if they keep taking a poo on your rug, at some point you're going to ask them to leave. So I think that's sort of, where we're at with with this is we've got to do this delicately and slowly but at some point we're yeah we're gonna have to move on from the rug pooers mm-hmm. yeah definitely more uh, more coming from uh, pink bike on that topic so in other news it's been great to see some results on the homepage. it's been a long time uh so a downhill race this weekend in tennessee and there were some big names there with uh, Luca Shaw, Dakota Norton racing. Uh, Nico Malali actually put on that race. And it was just great to see the photo epics, results, bike checks. It kind of felt like a, a normal race weekend again. Was anybody else surprised when they heard that that race was taking place? Having been to Windrock, I wasn't really surprised. That place is <laughs> special. <laughs> but no, you're going like, to get some you're going to get some haters now, Kaz. No, it's, I love Windrock. That place is super cool. Like what Nico has done down there is really impressive. I've ridden there and the trails are great. It's also just the place, the part in the U.S. where it is, is, is pretty different. Uh, you know, there's like, it's an OHV spot. So there's people with giant like mud buggies and stuff and guns and good food. And I don't know, it's, it's the South, but it's really oh, cool. And, it's, and it was great to see that. We, raised we should have had Dan on this morning to talk about all the awesome food he has. Every time he talks about food, it's so good. Yeah, the food down there is great. But but yeah, the trails are great too. And it's definitely a, like, you know, almost World Cup level track. So it's pretty cool to see. There's a reason all those guys have been down there hanging out and racing and riding. So. What are those fried bread things they eat down there? What are they called again? Hush puppies. Oh yeah, hush puppies. Yeah. 
Okay. That was important. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a couple of people in masks, but other than that, it looked like a pretty normal race weekend, which was, mm. was kind of cool to see. They had the podium separated. I saw that. Like, so the kids, like the podiums had like social distance podiums and so you're like six feet away from the person next to you. So. Oh, that's funny. Cause I think there were shuttles I saw to get people to the top yeah. and, then, and then the socially distanced podium. So it's kind of like a you got to do something. I don't know how it all works, but we'll see. (laughs) Um, So it's not all good news for racing. Um, Despite that race taking place in Tennessee, the Val de Sol World Cup, it was supposed to be a doubleheader cross country and downhill race. And despite being part of that new calendar that the UCI uh, released, it was actually canceled. And as we know, Italy was hit pretty hard. So that's kind of why that happened. Did they sort of announced those dates in anticipation of some restrictions being lifted and then it was just clear that they weren't going to get lifted is that what happened they announced so that race was supposed to be mid-september so maybe they were yeah hoping that the restrictions would be lifted but they local authorities have banned all major mass gatherings uh in excess of a thousand people so i can't imagine a downhill race having or a cross-country race even having less than a thousand people coming to cheer it on i mean they could do it without crowds but i think that it gets at that point it gets so um it's so expensive for um they'd have to gate the the whole area or how would you you know restrict people from coming and cheering on their favorite athletes so yeah we'll get into that a little bit later um i know james has talked to the uci so yeah we'll uh we'll get into it later um and then tech related news uh we have olens that just launched the dh38 fork um, you know, they've already got their world champion on their, on their product, uh, like Rooney, uh, it doesn't seem like they're resting on their laurels though. Kaz, what's, what's new and different about this fork? It's kind of more of an evolution rather than a brand new fork. It's just kind of the next version of the, the M38. This is what they call it, the DH38 M.1. So basically you're trying Rolls to make right it off the tongue. I know it's super <laughs> easy to see. Say, bleh, I can't even say the words I'm trying to say. Um, but basically they're just using, you know, new lubrication, new grease, everything, trying to make it slipperier, smoother, kind of refine the internals a bit. Brian? I'm, I'm going to uh, push back. I, I think DH38 is an excellent name. All marketing, branding people out there. It's perfect. It tells me what it's for and it tells me the, the diameter of the stanchions. What was the perfect. rest of the name, Casimir? It's just M.1. So it's just going to model, I would assume. Even yeah, though they DH38 already have, makes complete sense. DH38 is perfect. Yeah, no, I'm, fan, I'm a fan of that type of naming, like SB150, all those type of things are so much easier than all these silly names. We can have a silly name podcast one of these oh, days. let's do that. Talk about things. Shout out to the Ritmo. But, uh, Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. Nirvana. Um, and then what else uh, have we seen from Olin's uh, this week as well? Yeah, and there's also on a, uh, a Thok... I think that's how you say it. I'm not really sure. The um, Thok e-bikes, it's an Italian brand. They had a RXF 38. So it was a 38 millimeter stanchion, single crown fork, and it had a 1.8 inch steer tube. Uh, Levy's tapered. just blowing here. Levy's yeah. so excited to talk so about. So we have seen, you know, Fox released the the 38, came out earlier this year. So we're getting some bigger single crown forks, not just for e-bikes, but also for you know people, enduro racers or people that want a stiffer fork. But that 1.8 inch steer tube was what made this one stand out we first saw that at Eurobike last year and a lot of people said it's only for oe it's more for looks than anything so that e-bikes can look tough but again we'll see if this catches on that that one point inch standard at least Casimir, are they still doing the the one piece crown and steer or do you know if that 1.8 is two piece uh i don't know the details for this i think it's two piece it is actually looking mm. at it it looks it's two piece it's pressed uh yeah they stopped that they like their initial run the older rxf had that 
uh, kind of integrated crown race, but then they went back to the kind of more standard. My my question, I guess, is because everybody complains about creaking CSUs all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's for sure, like the the upper tubes in the crown. I wanted to say stanchion there, but I held myself back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a lot of times that creaking is the steer tube and the crown interface. And people get really frustrated, but you have to remember forks are really long. There is so much leverage on that thing. And it's real hard to m- make a joint there that stays quiet. But why aren't more companies making one-piece CSUs? It makes so much sense. I mean, obviously, they cost more to manufacture. That's oh, the reason. Look, you set a question up and answered it yourself. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> <a question>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> X-Fusion, either, they either still do it, they definitely used to do it. Uh, Cane Creek used to do it. But we should be seeing one-piece crown and steer tubes. And if there's a if there's an engineer out there that wants to tell me why that's a really stupid idea besides cost, send me a message. Yeah. I think cost is it, but then you're also starting to get more different offset options these days. So you'd have to have all those pieces. And so now they'd have one steer tube and then a bunch of different uh, crown. You can do that in the lower, ca- in the casting too, but yeah. The, but um, then again, it's just cheaper. This It it's all comes down to cost, I'd yeah. imagine. I think with the with this Olin's fork, that the 1.8 inch steer is just an OE thing. Um, it looks like there is a new fork, but from what my reading of the response from Olin's is that the... 1.8 inch steer will be an OEM product only, I think. Let's hope so. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I guess let's hope so. But on the other hand, like if if that's the way to make the thing stop creaking, I don't know. I th- I don't I think mean, people will accept it, but I don't know. Who there's might? no way people are going to be stoked on their new one and eight tenth steer tube. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm 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 very pro pro keeping it fractions. Yes, it's <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> So moving on with the news, uh, Brett Reeder launched a component brand, Title MTV, this week. He's been doing things a little bit differently this year. Uh, he announced he's not competing. He didn't go to Crankworks Rotorua. Uh, then he got surgery on his knee at the beginning of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. So he's, he's been kind of quiet. And then seems like he's been really, really busy. He said he needed components that could handle the abuse of free riding at the highest level. He's, yeah. So what do you think of his, his new line of products? There's an awesome marketing video. Do you think it's just a, a That video is wild. wild. The video is good. Yeah. The components look pretty basic. I mean, there's only so much you can do, no matter how revolutionary someone says their handlebar is, especially an aluminum bar, it, it, it kind of is going to fall into the same thing. And, and these components, even the wheels, they're made by We Are One. A lot of the stuff is sort of rebranded. White labeled but, stuff, right? Yeah, so it's well, a start. Nothing wrong, yeah. nothing wrong no. with brand marketing. Like if you find a factory that makes something good and then you ask them to make something to your specs, that's pretty much what a lot of manufact- legitimate manufacturers do too to some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, we look, the Grim Donut, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that these guys are out there putting their life, putting their health online at a minimum. And mm-hmm. definitely putting their life online at some point, some points while they're doing this crazy shit. And they want to make money because their career doesn't last long. You know, this is a dangerous, dangerous thing. I, I think it's cool to see some more rider-owned brands. It's cool that they basically supported a couple of riders out of the gate. Then and have I think we've seen title stuff under some riders for the last year, maybe longer mm-hmm. under like yeah, Carson like and and one of the Van Steenbergens and yeah. Yeah, no, that stuff's good. I mean, it gives, especially it's a, it's good to have a 
a future past slope style, you know, if you're a slope style athlete, that's not a long-term career. Like you can't do that. Sounded, yeah. Like he'd already yeah. burned out this year. That's why he was, uh, there's only so many flips and spins before, you know, there's not going to be a, no, there's always another guy. spin. You can add, you can <laughs> yeah, exactly. always add another so, spin. <laughs> sometimes I worry about those guys. Like, what are they going to do next? You know, I want to see them like working in gas stations and stuff. So it's good that they can have like an actual legit, um, yeah, a new thing to do. <laughs> Levy doesn't like the gas station line. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with working in a gas station. Usually, usually slope riders are sending me angry messages. They can uh, say, no, I want them to have careers after their slope style careers. Like, I, I think it's going to be not the a lot. Like, it's gas a hard station attendants, but they're going to be the ones sending Kaz the angry messages. Yeah, yeah I'd work in a gas true. station if I wanted to. Yeah, like, they're not. That's a good job. Free monster. Yeah. If you steal them, I guess. <laughs> if you steal them, monsters. Yeah, if you steal them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not condoning stealing, but I'm just reminding you that monsters are good. <laughs> and if you work at a gas station, you know, maybe you need some, anyways, no, moving. I'm on. just saying that the, the change, the change, the change from being at the top step of a slope style, like red, you win Red Bull Joyride. And if a few years later you're working at a gas station, you might not be as happy as somebody that perhaps started their own component brand. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. We got reader questions up next. And the first one, I think it's specifically written for me. The username is kooks everywhere. So I, that's another reason that it might be written for me. He says, topic suggestion is technical climbing dead. Uh, he goes on to say, most popular trail destination destinations have machine-built climbing trails. They're just mini roads. They're designed to get you to the top, period. They're not designed to challenge you or, or do anything like that. Uh, he says that he loves the challenge of not putting a foot down, uh, but it seems like this aspect of the sport is sort of disappearing. What do you guys think? I think it is to some extent, but also we're at a point now where places can have machine built trails. Like it's so much easier. If you can, if you need to put in five miles of climbing trail, if you need to hand dig that compared to using one of those little mini mm -hmm. trail builders, it takes so long. So I'd rather see more trails pop up rather than wait 10 years for some guy to make his hand built magical technical climb creation. And eventually those hand built, those uh, machine built trails will kind of, they kind of get narrower and turn into more technical things. I think it's interesting being in, in VC, like a lot of the, the climbs when I first riding, started riding here, like they're fire roads, like there's not as much technical climbing as in, in other parts of the world. Steep-ass fire roads. Yeah, really steep fire roads. It's like an entirely different kind of riding. Like from out east, there's a lot more technical climbs, but it's a lot more kind of up, down, up, down, up, down. So Out east is all like MC Escher trails where, where... You, you ride really hard and at some point you're expecting to descend and you just never do. You see the same tree eight times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you imagine if you had a technical climbing trail somewhere like Pemberton where you can get, you know, almost 3000 vert. If there's a technical climbing trail, it would take you so long. That's my Like dream. it'd be, I know you want that Levy and it's okay. But I think at a certain point, some places it just makes sense to put in these machine built. I have a question for you, Levy. Do you, like you're definitely on team kooks everywhere here. Do you struggle to find technical climbing in, in a, you know, he's talking about popular trail destinations. So Squamish qualifies. Like, do you struggle to find so, technical climbs? Uh, I don't think it's sort of, be yes. one or the other. Yes, I do. A lot of times I'll go up descending trails. You're definitely not supposed to do that. <laughs> I do that. <laughs> that makes during, you a kook. Here, I got it. I have a story for this. So we have legacy climbing trail here and like 20% up it. There's a sharp right-hand corner. Um, definitely takes it's low speed definitely requires some balance and there's a root step right after it um i've dabbed on it a whole bunch usually clear it i dab on it sometimes um i'm riding up there with my partner 
and she didn't make it like four or five times. She got extremely frustrated. We spent 20 minutes there and then she got the damn thing. And then she got that corner three or four times after that. Two months later, they've made that corner go around the route. It's way wider and it's taking that experience away from people. I know I say this all the time. I know Kazimer. exactly which one you, you mean. You've yeah. heard me say this so many times, Casimir, that they're taking that experience away from people who want to be challenged just so people don't have to put a foot down. Hello, it is okay to dab. And it's okay to walk if you can't make something. I don't think all the climbing trails need to be like nobody, not every single person on an enduro bike needs to be able to spin up here without putting your foot down. Casimir, everything you said makes complete sense. I just think it's a shame that they just, the whole idea is to not be challenged on the way up, only on the way down. I wish we were challenged on the way up more. I don't think that's the idea. I agree with you. I I'm, I like technical climbing trails too, so I'm not going to defend we actually agree trails. on a lot of things, Casper. Yeah, I mean, we like to argue, but we agree, so it makes it harder we, to argue. We agree aggressively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like in my dream world, like a trail like Lord of the Squirrels would be more technical, be actual single track. But I do realize that these little mini yes. trail builder things, you can the trail machines can just put out a bunch of single track really quickly. That trail got built way faster that way, so it's kind of a trade off. But I'm not out there digging super tech climbing trails, so I mean, I was gonna say, like, <laughs> yeah. if you want, I don't if have you much want. of an opinion, and I just have to be grateful for the easy climbing trails that get me up to the top of the mountain. A lot of times, they make really fun descending trails too. Those flat ones, like the all the flat corners and stuff. <laughs> uh, hopefully, in the ideal world, hopefully that boring climbing trail goes to a gnarly descent, and then things are a little better. Yes, because I don't yeah. like to go up a boring trail and then ride down it. And, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, in like, Squamish, yeah. they usually do. Yeah, uh, and that's exactly. what makes this place so amazing. The people that build that kind of stuff. But yeah, I do wish we had more technical climbing kooks everywhere. I'm on your team. That's why we don't road bike. I like the you know you you. You have something to think about when you're climbing other than how much your legs hurt when you're on a technical climb, right? Um, I think the last gravel ride I did, I spent like half an hour on the same technical climb trying to clean it and never did. That's because you were on the wrong bike. That's why yeah. you couldn't do it. <laughs> I was on go... a mountain bike trail, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because you went mountain biking on the wrong bike. Yeah, exactly. All right, moving on. Next question is from Dr. Fuzz. He says, he's, says that they've been obsessed with getting seats lower, uh, dropper seats, probably being the best mountain bike convention ever. But why is it at the top level, the World Cup, why do they seem to have their posts a little bit higher? Uh, what do you think? They don't. It just looks like that in the pictures because if you stood over that bike and then saw where that seat actually hit, like picture when you're standing on top of your bike where the seat is between your legs, like usually just a little bit above your knees probably. And you did that over the downhill bike with the amount of sag it has, that's where that seat would end up. So it's not the same as comparing that to your enduro bike. And their seat tubes are what, like 14 inches long or something? Yeah, standover is a lot lower. Seat tube and the angle too, the seat tube angle on a DH bike is typically super slack. So the position of that seat is in a different spot than it would be. Uh, I watched so. a, I watched a Lloyd Fruity bike check and he said he rides his saddle at 61 centimeters high and he's 5'11". That sounds high to me, no? Well, they're all really I mean, good. I can't so convert those numbers in my head. I will say, I will say that the, I think what's missing maybe from that entire picture is, uh, is just seat tube angles. It's, you know, now that seat tube angles are a lot steeper, it's, it's more, and you're more like directly over the saddle when both seated and standing, you definitely need to have more drop to get it out of the way. Didn't used to be so important when, when uh when your seat tube your effective seat tube angle or sorry your actual seat tube angle is quite slack uh and it 
on like on a lot of downhill bike designs and you move it down a little bit it moves forward quite a bit and uh, gets out of your way nicely so yeah. that's not yeah, the case I'm, with enduro bikes yep i've actually had some test bikes recently where i find myself stopping and lowering the seat like the old way but it still has even though it has 150 millimeter drop on it just because the it's it's too high still so even with 150 mil drop you're not getting it out of the way enough exactly yeah on steep because oh, it has such a steep seat tube angle the seat is just not in the spot where i want it so that's crazy how are people not like as a pm as a product manager how are you not adding as a long as long as dropper post as possible or as short a seat tube as possible if you've steepened the seat tube angle yeah i'm not sure it is funny because we'll see sometimes in the comments like it just kind of makes me laugh when people say that there's too much like it's too much 210 millimeters of drop is too much dropper post who are you what's the matter with you like and I want that seat out of the way. It's not going to be that far. It's not like it's down at your ankles. You know, like your bike is not that. Not a scooter. Like, no. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever take your seat post out just to ride a steep section, Casimir? No, I've seen that done before. I have a good story, though. <laughs> <laughs> story time. This. Story time. This is a good one. So there's a guy around here who used to build trails. He's He's gone now, uh, moved away. But we got to the top of... His I trail. thought that was a really dark story all yeah. of a sudden. He died. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of dark. I don't know. He, he, he's like in the woods now somewhere doing massive amounts of drugs. But this day he might have been too. But we were on the top of this trail. This dude rolls up who had built the trail. He sees us. And he's like, oh, hey, gets ready to drop in. He's got a Timbuktu messenger bag around his, you know, he's wearing a messenger bag. We're mountain biking, remember? And then he takes his seat post out of his bike, puts it in the messenger bag, and then drops in down the trail. <laughs> Oh, hoops everywhere. It's so good. That was <laughs> a cute. This is Dr. Fuzz. People. He had to go to, to the doctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. That, that, that was Dr. Fuzz. Yeah. Yeah, that was Dr. Fuzz I ran into. That was a good That's one. how you injure yourself mountain biking. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my that's god, that's amazing. Yeah. Last question from Mikey MT. Mikey MT again. We've got him again up here. He's got some good questions. He's I got guess. the right name. That's why you guys keep choosing him. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. it does yeah. stand out. Yeah. We'll make moratorium. Maybe next week we promise no Mikey MT questions. Are you going to ban Mikey MT, Kesmer? No, he's just going to take a hiatus so we can have other people. Okay. But he has had good questions, so we'll, yeah. we'll go with this one. Everybody else, look at his questions. It's just yeah. do something. Ins- he should be inspirational. Do you think people are berming out the trails for Strava times, he asked. Curious your take on Strava leaderboards in general, especially with the changes to Strava lately. I also want to say that I shared one of those memes, uh, one of those like angry memes about Strava charging for their services now. And it was sort of... You should feel bad. I should feel bad. You're 100% right. They should 100% charge. It's so cheap, you know, and we've been using this thing for so long. What's wrong with with paying for a thing that you use? I don't. Absolutely nothing. Like, come on. 100%. It's it's cheap. It's good. What about burning out? Do you think people are doing that? Do you think people are... No, I, don't think the berms, I don't think the berms are to make the trail like nobody's going to a trail and adding a berm so they can get the strava time Pe- people think. add berms so they I can you guys underestimate how petty people are <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> what, strava's entire premise is based on one-way competition like competing against people who don't know that, that you're competing with them people add berms because they want to feel like they're really good it's fun to rail a berm and everybody can rail a berm really fast so that's why we yeah. have lots of berms and people go on speak for yourself to, people <laughs> go on vacations. that fast flat corners for life everybody yeah no they go on vacations they go to the bike park somewhere they're like look at all these berms and then they go home they get inspired they pick up a shovel and all of a sudden you have berms everywhere and then they I don't, don't have it. time to go get the strava segment because they're too busy building so i feel yeah. like it's not the same people who are like going no. through strava segments and also spending all the time yeah building. the guy's going for strava segments that's that straight line that goes through four corners yeah. That's the Strava yeah. guy. Or they're like, oh, sweet. My GPS like has some crazy drift and I got the KOM or QOM by <laughs> yeah. like two minutes. <laughs> they're just throwing their, their Garmin unit down yeah. the trail ahead of them. <laughs> so our last one isn't actually I, a question. Actually, 
I have a, I have a good story about that. Uh, there was, there was a, um, a well-known female world cup racer who would always pass her garment off to somebody in the men's field during, during practice just to mess with, with some of the other racers' minds. So the last one, it's not a question, it's more of a comment. It's from Chris Neeland. It was in the Helm review. Kazimer, you just reviewed the new Helm, the updated Helm, I should say. He says uh, the Helm is the best single crown fork he's ever ridden. The more aggressive you ride it, the better it performs. We've had a couple Helms in and out here too for testing and stuff. And I just want to say, I think it's pretty neat that it doesn't have to be Rock Shocks and Fox all the time. Uh, Kent Creek, MRP, Formula. There's some other stuff out there these days that's really good that works really well what'd you think about that helm guess yeah. uh, i wouldn't say it's the best single crown fork i've ever ridden but it's definitely up there with those other like top competitors which is cool um yeah. it's got some little neat features i did run into that small issue where it's had something in the rebound circuit was making the sort of clicking noise on compression so i had to actually send it back to cane creek they diagnosed it they said the part was out of spec send it back and it's been working ever since but so that's kind of gives it a little bit um doesn't get my five-star rating but it is a really good fork and i agree with chris how many chili peppers oh you i know <laughs> i need a different what like this i'll we think about vegetable blueberries slugs slugs yeah five four well slugs seems bad i don't i'll think about this but either way um i do agree with chris that the more aggressive you ride it the better it performs four to five monster cans i don't drink monster i'll give it like i don't know pie you like pie uh yeah can like four apple pies i give it four apple pies nice. yeah Nice. That's a good number of apple pies. Yeah, maybe three, three point seven five apple pies. Yeah, pies you like it like can divide. What is that? Out of ten or out of five? Out of five. In a, what about fractions? Can you do that in fractions? Three and three pies? quarters. Three and three quarter pies. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, <laughs> it was a good fork. It's nice to have another option out there, and it's definitely a like a viable option. Like you could buy that and be totally happy. Lots of adjustments. It's cool to see Cane Creek doing like kind of coming to the market with some you know i just think of Kane, or i did think of cane creek really as this like massive company that just does all headsets all the time it's like a bearing company but they definitely have they're carving out a little niche for themselves with those e-wings and definitely not a massive company either no no they're small it'd be good to do we should do we should go and do an inside cane creek feature sometime we'll send dan sap over there he lives close yeah. But yeah, with all their little pieces now, you could have a for, a bike that's pretty heavily Cane Creek spec, which is cool. All right, we're switching gears next to racing. And our own James Smurthwaite, he rang up Simon Burney. Simon Burney is actually the off-road manager of the UCI. Uh, and they talked about the 2020 race calendar. So let's hear what he had to say. Could you start by... by um telling our audience what your role is at the UCI and specifically how that relates to World Cup racing. Yeah, sure. So I'm Simon Burney. I'm the uh, the manager of the off-road department at the UCI. So responsible for mountain bike, BMX, cyclocross, trials, pretty much it. I've come off the back of a few years of being responsible for more for mountain bike in a consultancy role. Uh, and I was the, the last few years, the event kind of coordinator for the World Cup. So still fairly involved in that one, even though I've kind of changed roles a little bit. I'm still, um, yeah, pretty much certainly this year responsible for the kind of the, the calendar and the rescheduling and a lot of that stuff. It, it might not be me as much at the event in the future as, as previously, but uh, yeah, I'm still, still involved in the World Cup. Cool. Um, so when did you realize this year um, that you would potentially have to, to reshape the season and, and change things up a bit? 
Well, I think as soon as the uh, as soon as the virus hit, it was quite evident in early March that a few events were going to struggle, and it just happened. You know, things were happening quite quickly, and different countries were re were reacting differently, and it just changed the uh, the calendar. So we kind of put a freeze on the calendar in uh, second week in March, and at that time we were getting. A few, yeah. Obviously, all the organisers of the World Cups were in different situations. Some were saying, "Yeah, we can do it." Some of the early ones, obviously, were were struggling. So I think um, Lozenge was the first one that said, "We can't do it," um, purely because of their their government pulled the financial backing of the event to kind of redirect it into sort of more urgent areas. Yeah, and I think that was the kind of the one that started it. And then obviously it was just a case of going event by event to see who could who could reschedule and who was who was going to struggle. So I think as far as the calendar went, Portugal was uh, obviously the first one originally planned, and that was the 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 kind of the second one after after Lozenge cancelled. Lozenge uh, was the the next one to to try and figure out, and uh, it just literally we were just kind of going event by event to see what the situation was and trying not to make decisions too quickly. Because things were changing really fast for March and April, and it would have been easy, you know, a lot of a lot of teams and riders were kind of, um, you know, expecting decisions quite soon, which were very difficult to make because everybody was just waiting to see how it developed, uh, what governments were going to do as far as major events were concerned, and um, yeah, just literally take it step by step uh, to the point where. Yeah, we felt more comfortable in early May to try and get a calendar announced of the events that at that time we knew we were hopeful could could go ahead. Um, so, yeah, May the 15th, we published the um, the schedule uh, that we knew at that time. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's important that everything we were doing is based on the information at that period. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we had the news yesterday that even since that uh, calendar was announced that Val de Sol heard yesterday that... Um, their government had put some restrictions on events, which meant that they couldn't go forward as well. So, you know, it's 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 a constantly evolving calendar and situation for everybody. And I think, yeah, all we're doing is just trying to give as much information as we can at, you know, at the time. Was there any uh, suggestion ever of cancelling the whole season or you're always going to try and put at least something on? <clears throat> well, I think it's important to know that you know, the events... They're not the UCI events. The, the events are the each individual organizer's own event. Um, we've got a yeah, we we're we've got a contractual agreement with the organizers to to put those on as World Cup races. But it's the organizers' event and it's for them to make a decision about cancellation or postponement. It's not for us to to tell them how to how and if they can do their event. If we suddenly said we're going to cancel the event, and we've got to bear in mind that a lot of these people are professional event organizers, that's their mm -hmm their day-to-day -day work if we turn around and say actually we're going to cancel the world cup then you know we're as in breach of contract as the other way around so we you know we're very mindful of waiting for organizers to 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 keep us informed of their situation and for them to make the decisions and we're just reacting to the to the information that they're giving us so yeah to answer your question it was never never a thought to, to cancel the whole world cup you know, we're, I'm, I'm, again, I'm very mindful that teams and riders just want to race. And whether that's 
two races in October or, you know, 10 races from August to November. It's, you know, I think people just want to get back and do do what they they enjoy doing and, uh, you know, what yeah, what most of them are paid to do as well. So I think it's it's important to, to, to salvage what we can. And if if the World Cup season turns out to be a, you know, a three race season, yeah, that's the way it is. But I think we'll, it would literally have to be every single organiser saying, sorry, we can't do it for us yeah. to say, well, right, there's no World Cup, you know. Yeah, yeah. A three-race season is much better than a no-race season, that's for Absolutely, sure. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I think I spoke to, um, yeah, we kind of tried to keep up with the with what the teams were were, were kind of feeding back and, and the, the riders' reps. And Greg Minar's the, uh, the, the the male downhill riders' rep um, and Miriam is the... Uh, the women's rep and I spoke to Greg a little bit and you know he was he he reminded me and I'd kind of hadn't thought about it too much that a lot of the especially the downhill teams and riders are paid by a big part of their income is is um bonus money for events mm-hmm. the more events that they can they can perform at and, and perform in then you know they get more chance of, of earning their money so it's you know again that was a, it was that was quite important for me to 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 start the process of doubling some of the events up if we can make one event, two events, then it gives them an opportunity to, uh, to to make their money and to keep keep sponsors, you know, keep sponsors is, happy. Is that something that's been sort of raised before? Um, have people kind of had that idea before? Is that is that kind of fresh for for the scenario we're in at the moment? The double event thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it just it was purely for this. You know, we hadn't. I'd never. I'd never even really considered it. But my colleague uh, Caroline, who's kind of more responsible for the World Cup at the UCI um she's a ski racer and it happens quite a lot in ski racing and it also happens in bmx as well so you know there's there's kind of a history of it and it was her that that mentioned the idea when we'd you know we'd spoken to greg and we were thinking of what to do and that's that's that kind of she popped up with that idea and yeah we just ran it past a few people and couldn't see a reason why not to go for it yeah to me it kind of makes sense right if all the tv's there and all the riders are there and you know you maybe pay a few extra nights in a hotel or something like that but it seems like it works out out best for everyone right yeah absolutely yeah i mean it makes it a makes it a different schedule and i think it makes it actually quite interesting from a from an athlete point of view to to do a number of events over yeah what what now is going to be a short number of weeks um Mm -hmm. you know i think the kind of the whole um you know process of training going into them recovering from them doing two world cups whether it's downhill or cross country in six days is is, is yeah it's just a different way of looking at things i think it actually makes it quite interesting you know it's going to be a different year completely from what's happened and i think that just adds a new dimension to it and uh, yeah hopefully we don't get any more or not too many more that that can't go ahead with their events and we can we can have a, a compressed quite intense season and it'll be interesting to see who can you know who can perform through it yeah absolutely are you expecting the same um track between each race on the double header weekend i guess you're mainly talking downhill for this right um interested next year as well yeah so yeah i think for, for downhill um we can't move to camera positions between the two because we're, we're, the, the way the schedule is going to work out is it'll be a for downhill it'll be uh quality on a thursday friday on a friday for the first one, quali Saturday, final Sunday for the second one. So between the end of quali, sorry, the end of finals on Friday and the beginning of training on Saturday, there's not many hours to make big changes. And television, they need a lot of time to, to re-cable and to, to move cameras. So we need to keep the same camera positions. 
but for downhill, you can make quite a big difference just by moving the tape, you know, a couple of meters, make some fresh lines, yeah. put the new sections in. So it'll just be a you know a few hours of every every kind of available hand to make a few changes with the with the course course guys, technical delegates, just to make some changes, just to kind of freshen it up and to make it just a little bit different from the the, the same one before. With cross country, again, the camera things are still very relevant. Um, it's a little bit harder to make a difference just with a few meters. So we'll just look at maybe putting putting a, a loop in, taking the loop out, just again, just to make it a little bit different for the for the Nova Mesto cross country option. Yeah, and are those sort of the the changes? Do you, do you expect them to be in televised areas, or do you think we maybe won't see those changes? Again, you know, it might be possible to make some changes in areas that aren't on, on for downhill, not on the TV. So yeah, it'll be a mix of both. I think. I think TV it would be nice to the TV audience to see a couple of different options. If they're going to watch two races in three days, it'd be nice to watch something a little bit different, but it won't be dramatic changes. It won't be a, a different part of the hill or a different, you know, a different area. It'll be pretty similar, but again, you know, you can do quite a lot with just a few meters and still, yeah. uh, still keep, you know, television. And if it's, if it's an area that's uh, maybe, not, you know, out of shot, then a little bit more change can be can be planned what measures are going to be um put in place to keep riders spectators um volunteers and organizers uh, safe at the event so that's all being planned right now uh, our first kind of big meeting about that is next friday uh, in a week's a week's time um so our kind of yeah director of of the medical area is has been working really hard on what measures need to be put in place and w- so there'll be there'll be measures in place Kind of across all the events from a UCI point of view, uh, but then obviously every country will have their own their own measures and their own precautions as well. So we'll kind of we'll just need to work with you know with the local authorities and the organisers to to implement for them to implement theirs and to to still have effective competition, uh, but then a kind of across the UCI side and also from a Red Bull point of view with television, you know in things that we've never thought about. You know they can't have that many people in the in the OB truck and they can't have, you know, that their normal way of working is going to have to change quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes. You know, even things like the timing guys, the timing guys normally are five people sitting next to each other in a, in a porter cabin, yeah. but there's so much to consider and to think about to still have competition that's relevant and fair and organized um, and still be, safe for everybody and not to uh, not to transmit any any infection if it's out there in germany uh football soccer has started to come back behind closed doors so with no spectators um is that something the uci is considering for these races well again it's not us it's not us that's considering that it's the organizers of the events and some of them from from what you understand if that happens they can still go ahead um we've got a couple of organizers that if that is the situation from the government at that time, they're going to really struggle to uh, to still hold the events because spectator income is a massive part of their event budget. Mm-hmm. So with no spectators at all, it's going to make it very difficult for them. If they can get 3,000, 5,000 as a limit, which some countries are talking about right now, then we're pretty confident we can that they can make it work. Yeah. Other restrictions um, potentially might sort of involve crossing borders and things like that, which means some races can't make it to every event. Does that kind of stop a race going ahead? Does that mean it won't count towards the overall? Like what would be the, the situation there? I think we need to 
look at that one closer to the time when we understand a little bit better what travel restrictions are still in place. I think, uh, just as, a, as an example, I think if it was a situation where Europeans could travel, but maybe North Americans couldn't couldn't travel over, um, I don't think that one or two nations not being able to travel would mean that the event. Well, it certainly wouldn't mean the event wouldn't go ahead. Yeah. Um, if it be, if that became too much of an issue, then whether the the overall still stays the same. We, yeah, I think we just need to look at those kind of situations a little bit closer to the time. You know, we're just coming into June now. We've still got three months, and I think a lot can change in that time. We're sort of seeing borders opening more and more, and kind of it feels like there's more plans for people to be able to travel. So I think we just need to wait a little bit longer, and yeah, just react accordingly. Right? We just need to make sure it's. The people that want to race, you know, I don't think it would be fair to not have an event just because a couple of nations can't be there. Um, at the same time, we need to be mindful of how that impacts almost next season as well. If if people can't score ranking points this year, you know, UCI points are important for qualification for events, for, um, you know, for team rankings, who becomes an elite team, this kind of thing. So there's a lot to, to think about. And we just need to make sure that it's fair this year. Um, but also going into next year that we kind of take into consideration what's happened this year and make sure that no one's yeah, seriously disadvantaged and, uh, you know, starting off next year on the back foot because of something that they couldn't really help this year. Yeah, I think like even if we just, you know, even if there are just some exhibition races, a big pick me up for the community and everything. So, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to the double headers, um, do you think that's something that could maybe be implemented uh, in future if it's a success? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it works and to get the feedback from you know the riders, especially and the teams and, and television, and to sort of see if it's something that we can do. And it, it, we can't do it at a double event because we can't move between disciplines at cross country and downhill quickly and easily, especially for television. Uh, but for a single event, yeah, I think if it works out and people are into it, I think it's a great way of giving everybody a little bit more opportunity to race and, you know, sponsors to get their exposure and uh, a television audience to, yeah, to see a couple of events from the same place at the same time without adding significantly to anybody's cost, whether it's organisers, you know, television costs like you mentioned before, cameras are already there. It's just a few more days, extra accommodation. Same thing for teams. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely doable if if that's what the you know if that's what the majority want to do. Yeah, and again, you know, if, that, if that's something that comes out of this year, then it would be a yeah one good thing out of a, a crappy. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, right, some of the race, so for example, um, Lenzerhide wasn't originally scheduled to organize to run a downhill race, and then it, it was going to. And same with Leah Gang and sort of the XC World Champs. Um, how did how did that come about? Is that something they kind of volunteered to to do, or was that a, a bit of push from the EZI there? Yeah, no, we kind of suggested it to them, and they were very, very, very willing to to fill the weekend. You know, originally Lenzerhide had bid for a double. Right. Um, it was only the fact that we couldn't fit everything in that that they ended up with a, um, a cross-country single. Uh, they'd actually got, they were originally planning to do a Trials World Cup, which was going to kind of fill in the space of the downhill. Um, and then, yeah, when we were kind of trying to figure out ways of adding more races, then it was an obvious one to see if they could step back in, which they were, yeah, we were grateful to them to, to do that. And again, with, um, with the cancellation of Alpstadt, 
cross-country world championships. I think a lot of people thought that we might go to Novi Mesto, mm-hmm. um, but we really tried to not take a World Cup away. If we yeah. could add a, add a World Championships without, um, you know, without losing an event, that was that was the kind of the priority. And again, you know, Leah Gang, they did both a few years ago as World Championships, but it was at two different venues over two weekends. And that wouldn't have worked for this year with the situation because of uh, television. So we just needed to figure out, or they needed to figure out, if they could host cross-country at the same venue as the downhill, which is quite tight and quite quite a challenge. But, yeah, they've, they've come back with a, with options for the course and uh, all the other things that need to go with it. So that was the, the best the best option at the time. So that will potentially be a new a new course then? Yeah, brand new. Oh, that is commitment. No one's ever seen it before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair yeah. play. That's really good. Yeah. Could any other venues go later or do you think this is sort of an on or off situation now? Like we probably won't see any more postponements. Well, I think, again, we're all aware that most of the venues that we've got, apart from Portugal, are all ski areas. Yeah. Literally every single one. So they're, they're all really concerned about going out of October, you know, once you start getting into November in some of those places, the weather could make a, a difference. And I think to to have a situation where we pushed an event back into November and then we were all there and then weather meant it didn't happen would be a real kind of kick in the teeth. So I think that's how we almost ended up with this very compressed season. Uh, and, yeah, obviously we put Portugal as, as the last event because we know that their weather's not going to be they're not going to get any snow, so that's going to be that's going to be okay. So yeah, I think nobody was really into that, and I think when um, when we got the news from Val de Sol yesterday, um, the instruction from their government is nothing before the the middle of October, and we talked to them about going later, but the the only option for them would be November the eighth weekend, and again they were you know they were so so scared of 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 weather the, yeah the other effect was um the government had actually pulled pulled funding as well as, as stopping events but again if it was purely down to a um a calendar issue then they would have been really pushed to to do that mm-hmm. and again ski areas you know they're kind of even things like hotels are out of season at that time um so there's a lot of things to take for them to take into consideration when they're making decisions. And the last thing they want to do was to cancel, you know, and nobody wants to cancel. Um, so they're looking at every opportunity to try and reschedule if they can. And it's, it is literally the last, you know, the last decision is to cancel it. So it's none of it's been taken uh, lightly, any of these decisions. You know. um, how's the feedback been from riders and teams um, about this, this new season? Have you been able to sort of, yeah gauge any reaction only off social media honestly and i think once the calendar was announced there was a lot of riders that were super happy to have something to to aim for and to plan for and i think for them you know riders they like they like targets to train for and they like you know to see something at the end of of a tunnel and uh you know not having anything that whole march april time was really difficult to be a to be an athlete i think um so i think they were so happy that they could see a calendar so everything was positive on that one yeah, and I think, you know, generally we tend to hear things if people aren't happy about it, <laughs> not the other way around. If, if, if people are happy, we don't really hear about it. So, you know, social media is the best place to gauge to, to gauge reaction to things. And I think, you know, there was a lot of positive, you know, positive uh, vibes about 
a calendar being out and at least, okay, we know, we know what we're training for. Or we know what time of year we're training for. And I think that was, that's important. And again, you know, if one or two events slip away like Val de Sol, it doesn't change the rider's kind of, um, you know, goals of being in shape for uh, September, October. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I've not seen one one bad word about it. So I think people are just desperate for yeah, desperate for action. Yeah, and I think you know some of these some of these week spare weekends. You know, we're talking only talking World Cup here, but you know, there's other events out there that they're trying to reschedule. And I think if they can, you know, if somebody can slip into that gap now between Valdesol, sorry, between Lenzerheide and Leger that, that Valdesol have left then, you know, it still gives people a chance to, to ride and to, to race. And there's plenty of other races out there that of organisers that are, you know, looking now. Now that schedule's out, they're all trying to reschedule their events and to see where they can fit in. Um, some of them don't mind if there's a clash with the World Cup because they can go for the, you know, there's plenty of other riders that aren't necessarily World Cup riders. Um, and, there's yeah, there's still a lot of people out there that are hoping to put races on. So I think, you know, there will be, weekends where there's two or three races going on and uh, other stuff happening so yeah busy but better than being <laughs> bored well, better, yeah better than quiet yeah for sure yeah um, we've seen the olympics push back to 2021 um has that affected next year's season at all i mean we haven't seen the calendar yet but has that has that caused like further disruption yeah a little bit um only only the only the the we, we issue a pre-calendar for a world cup so it, it gives other organisers an opportunity to to know when the World Cups might be planned for. Uh, and we actually had two World Cups planned in the period when the Olympics is going to take place. So then, obviously, people that are bidding for a World Cup are bidding based on the dates that we've given them. So we had a lot of bids for those, for those couple of weeks that um, we've had now to go back and change. Yeah. So, yeah, it meant a little bit of re, a, re, a reformat of the the World Cup schedule, but nothing else apart from that, really. I think, you know, still the same number of World Cups, you know, the same kind of general flow to the season as it would have been this year with Olympic year. Mm-hmm. And again, that really only affects, um, you know, the cross-country side, not so much the downhill side, yeah. only the fact that we can't have a downhill double, downhill cross-country double World Cup in that Olympic period. So, yeah, yeah it just it just means that, again, like it would have been this year, it would have been quiet for for the downhill guys, kind of end of July, going into the middle of August. Same cool. Next year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's all my questions. So thank you very much for your time. Um, is there anything else you, you want to say as, as sort of a representative of the UCI about the season? Or? No, no, I think we said it all. You know, I think we just, yeah, I think we just, we're, again, we're just really, we know that people want to race and we know that teams have got and riders have got sponsors that they want to keep keep on board for next year and as, as much as we can do this year to uh you know to to make events happen we're we're going to do it you know we're not we're not we're not pulling a plug on anything we're just going to steam on in and try and, and try and get as much competition as we can for everybody perfect thank you Simon. that's okay. nice one thanks man bye cheers see ya So that was our James Smurthwaite talking to Simon Burney, the manager of the UCI's off-road division. There's a lot to take in there, uh, including that it sounds like we're going to get some double headers, which is pretty interesting, but also that it sounds like it's really, really difficult to schedule a World Cup season. <laughs> There's a lot of things to take into account. 
Yeah, no wow. kidding. They were, I mean, we got the calendar for 2020 in September of 2018. So they're already thinking so far in advance, like they're bidding on races that were supposed to be mm-hmm. go- happening during the Olympics, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to see an entirely different season, obviously, and it's going to be packed a whole lot tighter and it's going to be super busy for riders. Um, also, guys, every round is in Europe. Brian, what do you yeah. think of that? I mean, I understand it. Of course. They've got yeah. better infrastructure. In a compressed season, you can get a lot more done efficiently. You can travel around better. Uh, it sucks for North American riders. You know, um, Simon mentioned a little bit in there about how, you know, they wouldn't cancel races uh, if if North Americans couldn't make it for whatever reason. Um, and that's fair enough. I mean, the show's got to go on, but I he didn't really answer the question about how how to i don't think they can right now how to address it for fairness in terms of points next year who qualifies for different team structures and stuff like that's a that's going to be a bridge that they've got across at some point could they maybe go off the previous season james yeah that could be a way to do it there's a lot to think about there with uh like you know uh who becomes an elite team and who who can enter races next year and things like that so you probably didn't give a great answer because they don't have one yet they don't know what it's going to look like and um yeah but it's good to know they're thinking about it and that they're going to try and make it so that no one's disadvantaged if that is the case definitely i hope that we keep double headers i'm greedy i want more racing anyways and uh i don't know i don't see any reason we wouldn't keep that in the future yeah i actually wrote about that last year before all the pandemic stuff i wrote about world cup racing and why he will n- never fail to point out <laughs> hey, i'm not right ever- that often everybody so <laughs> if i'm right you know i wrote though about like why aren't we having double headers you know we have months i realize that these races cost a lot of money to host but we have like a month between some of these races and these resorts are so close together let's just have two tracks obviously it's a vast oversimplification you know it doesn't even just one track with with different i was surprised that they're actually going to do different track or slightly modified tracks yeah yeah but that yeah. surprised me because because that means that they will have to do track walk and stuff twice, hey? Yeah. The camera position thing, that's a a big deal that I hadn't thought about that, James. I had no idea. Yeah, me me neither, really. Um, I, I think they're probably going to just try and get by without a second track walk. It sounds like the, the, the show's got to keep going, right? Like they've got to get training in and then they've got to get straight into qualification. So, I mean, if you're only moving tape a few meters, I imagine it'd be the kind of thing where you stop on your practice run, you maybe watch a few riders roll through and kind of see the lines and, and take it from there. Another thing I guess they could do is have both routes taped out on track walk day and you just see them both on one day. They're not just going to add in super booters here and there, just surprise the riders. <laughs> super kickers. That'd be awesome. Blind downhill racing. Oh, come on. <laughs> hey, they do it at Enduro. Exactly. Yeah, it's like the total opposite of World Cup downhill. <laughs> Another thing that I'm that I'm excited for, Brian, this is actually one of the notes that you've made, is that this time of the year, it is likely to be muddy. And I am dreaming of a season where every World Cup race is wet and muddy and we see like a rainmeister. We see like some guy or some woman come out and just dominate. And this is the person who dominates when it's wet and muddy. I think that'd be super cool. I don't think the riders are looking forward to having a wet race every round. I think some of the downhill racers might be, but there's not a lot of cross-country racers. I mean, I guess the ones that do cyclocross as well, like the more technical cross-country riders might actually do better if it's really terrible conditions all year. I actually think that the cross-country riders 
that would be advantaged by that might look forward to it more than the downhillers because with with downhill it's such because every it's individual you go when you go um and you it really ends up not being that level of playing field with a lot of mud races whereas whereas for xc it's kind of a level playing field Mm -hmm. and like somebody like you know kabush won his won his world cup i watched that promo did you yeah i was there i was like 12 what was that like it was sick. Okay. I mean, it was terrible. I had to race the day before and I, yeah, he didn't even recognize me. You're so covered in mud, right? <laughs> I think that if there's any racer that's looking forward to some muddy races, any cross country racer, it's probably Vanderpool. Uh, Cyclocross, yeah. Yeah, he is a monster. You know, he's not going to beat my best friend Nino, I guarantee you, but. <laughs> <laughs> there had to be a Nino. <laughs> I love Nino reference in here. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> but good luck, Matthew. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Or like Yolanda Neff and Pauline Ferran Prevot, who also race cyclocross, like in the off season, like they've got the technical skills, are used to that, those terrible conditions. And I mean, it's off, often a mental game too to ride in the mud, like when you're cold and it's uncomfortable. And who knows? Maybe we'll have a beautiful, a beautiful fall. Like it's going to be sunny into, what is it, the end of. Uh, October in Austria? Yeah, I don't I don't think beautiful falls exist in Slovenia, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Uh, who uh James, who who do you have? Um who's gonna be if we have some aggressive mud races on the downhill side, who's who does that benefit? I guess everyone always looks to Danny Hart, right, after Champery. Uh I think he's still like the the mud rider that everyone looks to, but um must be pressure for him. Yeah, that's true. It's a big, big thing to live up to, right? I think another rider, too, that might not be at the forefront of everybody's minds when it comes to just mud is Gwyn. If you look at Gwyn, Gwyn's had a lot of success in mud, uh, especially for a guy from Southern California. So, yeah, we might see that as well. I think he's just good, right? I think he's just uh, I think that might have yeah. really fast. <laughs> I think this Gwyn guy might, he might do he might talent. <laughs> How much do you guys think uh, a double header um, will be affected by things like rider fatigue? And because it's, it's a pretty packed schedule, right? Do you think that could have a, an impact on the results? Aren't they just coasting down the hill? No, I'm just joking, everybody. <laughs> I'm just joking. Well, I think uh, I'm, I'm Sarah, like on the XC side, it's going to affect some strategies. How would you approach well, it's super different. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, a lot of these racers do um, like stage racing. Like we saw a lot of these racers doing stage racing uh, this spring, actually, so they could get more UCI points coming into the Olympic qualifying. Because if you have more UCI points, you start further up in the field, you have a better chance of doing well at the first World Cup, which was you know, going to be super important to qualify for the Olympics if you weren't already qualified. So yeah, I mean, they're going to be fatigued on the second day, but you know, it's they're such amazing athletes. It's something that they can they can handle. I'm not sure. Did, did Simon talk at all about what it meant for the short track races? Because, I mean, the seating for the, the past year has been determined by the, the short track race on the Friday. So I'm not sure how they, they're planning to incorporate that into the um, into the races as well. And it, I, if it'll be a three-race three, three race weekend now or if it's just the two longer cross-country races. Two short four. track. <laughs> <laughs> short track in the morning, cross-country in the afternoon. I mean... Yeah, it's definitely going to be uh, fatiguing. And then also when we get to the Olympics, that's just a one a one and done race. So if you're training for these double header racers, you might be disadvantaged when we get to like the most important race of the year next year. So and vice versa, some people that had been training for the Olympics and planning on the Olympics this year 
might be coming into the this more like almost a stage race kind of like a war of attrition this fall might might be on the back foot. Yeah, I mean, some athletes, they, they did announce that the athletes that were pre-qualified. So um, if you, I think, I don't know exactly the criteria, but definitely if you finish top five at World Championships last year, you're pre-qualified for the Olympics and those people have kept their spots. So some people like don't have to worry about this year at all. Um, you Like Kate Courtney or Nina Scherter, um, people who, who finished top five at, at the World Championships, uh, they can keep training for the Olympics for two years instead of one year. They're going to be so overtrained. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these athletes, they're so good at like switching tacks and like an athlete like Nino Schurter, like he did uh, Cape Epic in prep or he was planning on doing Cape Epic in preparation for the Olympics this year. So they've got amazing coaches and support teams that can help them just adjust we'll their some, training. I think we'll see some surprises. I think, I think anytime things are this disrupted, we'll, we'll see some unfamiliar names near the front. We'll see some interesting tactics. We'll see some people blow up. It'll be interesting. I mean, it's almost like a second chance too. Like, I feel like you always want that second chance when you're a racer. Like things don't go according to plan. You just blow that one corner and that's it. You're off to the next stop and five countries away from there. But this time it's like you have a second chance almost. Like you can you can try that same corner again and race pace the next day. How do you feel that this is going to affect the, the down, people's downhill mentality? Do you think that they'll go harder, take more risks because they got two shots at it, James? I kind of feel like there almost could be two two races in one, right? Like the guys who are going for the overall, you know, it's such a tightly packed season that if you get even the smallest injury, that's kind of your season over. So maybe you've got, you know, some of the, the more experienced heads who are um, comfortable going at, you know, your sort of 95 to 99%. And then people who will see it as an opportunity, like you said, it's a bit of a shake-up, it's an opportunity, and they get two goes at it. So, you know, the people who we used to see maybe um go all out and and sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't like i think those guys could could end up picking up some good we, results too we can guarantee that laurie's gonna roll the dice every single race yeah it's quite a few like that like i feel like um finales has been like that in recent mm-hmm. years as well like yeah. always one of the fastest guys there and then doesn't always go to plan for him Hey guys, have we heard anything about maybe some EWS racers coming back doing some downhill races or maybe the other way around if there's some EWS stuff that might happen? Have we heard any, like maybe Sam Hill comes back, does some World Cup downhills? Just thinking out loud. I think because the seasons are like uh, both EWS, cross country and downhill, like they're all so condensed right now um, in the schedule that we, we just won't see that this year. Like we won't see somebody who's like, Oh, I have a month off in July. Like there's no either EWS races or downhill races. Like I'll just, I'll switch tack and, you know, go and try that other race. But yeah, he won't be able to do that. Uh, I did, we did a little, um, social media, Christina interviewed Martin Mays and, um, he was saying that he wants to do some DH this year, but at that time the the schedule hadn't been announced looking at it. I don't see a way for them to do it. I know a lot of people like, you know, people want to Sam Hill to come back and dominate in downhill and people want to be, be 15 years younger and not, not ache all the time. Like it's, it's all, it's a a little bit of nostalgia, but I don't, I don't think this is the season where that's going to happen. I also thought it was a really interesting point that Minar made about, about bonuses being missed out on. That's a, I mean, we've seen it every, all of our social media feeds have been just destroyed by racers putting on their influencer hats because they're obviously getting tons of pressure from sponsors to like be useful while there's no racing 
And uh, yeah, there's a lot of bonus money being missed out on this year and a lot of sponsorship is in jeopardy. It'd be good to get somebody on to talk about some of the challenges that athletes are facing right now because yeah, it can't be easy. At least I think with the the calendar mm-hmm. in place, even if it is a little bit, it might it might still change. Like at least it's so good to have something to train for um, and have a date in mind. Like that'll make it a lot easier, I think, for people to to get back in the groove of things and start training. And they can, you know, the racers can turn around and say, "No, I'm not going to shill your your ten percent off codes on on social. I've got training to do." I could use all the 10% off I can get personally. <laughs> <laughs> you're just uh, following all those codes. You've got a yeah. pile of them all. You're like, oh man, I need gloves. Okay. 10% I can off. see, I could see a future where Levy is like a coupon clipper. Uh, I'm, I'm actually all joking aside. I'm actually the opposite of that now, yeah. but I definitely you literally like money on fire. Yeah. I definitely, well, you know, I, you you're like not going to live fire. forever. I like to have fun. I don't, I don't care. I have to keep reminding you to submit expense reports. You're really bad at it. I know. You're just like, oh, I'm not going to bother. It's like, no, you, you won't expense it. And then you'll complain that you had to spend mo- your own money. So I'd rather just not buy whatever is needed in the first place to do the yeah, job. But it was needed. <laughs> and I asked him, like, why don't you buy these you monster buy... energy drinks in bulk? And he said, I just can't, I can't do it. I was like, but you save so much money instead of buying them at the gas station every time you go. Well, I, I would also die in a week. Uh, yeah. yeah. You might over overindulge in sugary yeah. drinks. That's enough sugar-free. of my spending habits. Let's wrap it up with comment gold here, everybody. <laughs> Um, Patrick, two cents. He's got two cents here for us. He says, no one in an eight steer. He says it's practically obsolete already. Two inch steer. Let's go. Yeah. Why have we gone from fractions to decimals, Brian? I don't know. It's weird. Uh, uh, Yeah. Inch and eighth just rolls off the tongue, but one and four fifths doesn't maybe. One and eight tenths is pretty good. But that is one and four fifths. Yeah. Yeah. I know, but I like one and eight tenths better. Okay. It sounds more impressive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do find it's weird, yeah, when you're in the US and you're like, there's a street sign and it says it's like four and three tenths of a mile to whatever destination. You're like, I have no idea what that means. Okay, let's move on. Um, I'm not sure if it's MOV or MMOF, but he says, my arms are tired, my eyeballs are bouncing in my sockets, and he's needing a good whiskey for warmth. Oh, yeah, I grabbed that one from the Santa Cruz video from their Belgium cobblestones. And I thought it just summed up that feeling so well of like riding in the rain on like a gravel bike. I mean, Levy loves gravel bikes. So does James. So does, oh my God, I'm surrounded by gravel <laughs> bike lovers. <laughs> that video, that video was a great video to see mm. two, two Shredder mountain bikers, Joe Parkin, he's been in the industry forever and they're out there riding these road bikes or gravel bikes on the cobbles. I thought it was neat. It was different. I thought it was cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Santa Cruz is real do... good at that, doing different interesting things. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I like that Joe Parkin, I, you know, I only ever see him at events and, you know, we don't talk too much or anything, but pretty much every time I see him, he's like done some creative thing. He's like printed a zine in his, like from his laser printer in the back of the truck or some. Yeah. He's Have you read his books? Some. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting yeah, yeah. dude. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, everybody, that's it for episode 11. It's pouring rain here. Sarah and I are going to go ride some field test cross-country bikes so you guys can all watch our field test review videos. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Mm